This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Tearfund's Footsteps magazine and Aruka Network. In this episode, we're exploring how people recover from alcohol addiction. If anyone is struggling out there, then one thing I would say is addiction lives in solitude. It lives in aloneness and darkness. It doesn't, it doesn't live in community and togetherness and connection. That's the voice of John, a recovering alcoholic based in the UK and a member of the worldwide group Alcoholics Anonymous. If you don't know, Alcoholics Anonymous is a support network for people recovering from alcohol addiction. I've been itching to have somebody from this organisation on our show for a while now to learn how alcohol addiction impacts people's lives, but also how people recover from it. And that's exactly what we'll hear from John in this episode. He's going to share his powerful story of how alcohol impacted his life and the people around him, for a time making him homeless, and then the remarkable story of how he began his recovery and ultimately how he now supports people on that same journey. On the way, you'll hopefully learn a bit about the power of honesty, love, connection and forgiveness in this healing process, And at the end, John will also share his thoughts on how you might best support people around you who might be struggling with addiction. So let's get into the interview now. Here's John explaining how his relationship with alcohol began. I started off life as quite a shy, timid, insecure young man and just never seemed to feel like I fitted in most places which is weird because I was kind of hung out with all the cool kids at school but um, still didn't uh, feel like it in myself and I guess around that age of 13 14 when life really started to sort of start exploding you know with girls and parties and you know just life was was looming and and I was kind of terrified of it and I soon found out what alcohol did you know, as a as a substance, not as um, you know, that whole thing we were drinking parks and all this sort of things as youngsters and get grab bottles of cider and with my pals and go to parties, but it certainly wasn't the taste of alcohol that I fell in love with. It was what it did to me as a person, what it, it managed to reach inside me and remove all the fear I was experiencing and all those insecurities and all the shyness you know it's like I turned into somebody who I wasn't and I loved it for that reason I turned into this new character who who was not afraid anymore I could speak to my father I could speak to girls I could go to parties and it was like this gateway substance that just allowed me to get to not be that shy little boy anymore and I loved it for that for that reason so that was um I believe for me I you know I think that there is evidence that alcoholics have a physical makeup which is different to those who are not predisposed to that to alcoholism in a sense of you know alcohol affects the body in a way that it doesn't affect others like my sister had exactly the same upbringing but she turned out completely different you know Mm. and um but i but i didn't so there is evidence that we're physically different but it was certainly a lot to do with that mental spiritual state of who i was 
um, because once I started drinking, it, it had me. I, I, I was almost like an alcoholic waiting to pick a drink up. I picked the drink up and the drink took me. That's sort of the best way I can explain it. I don't believe I drank myself into it, which sounds mm. odd to say, but, <laughs> you know, that was, that was my experience. Yeah. So when, how did you realise it, it was a problem? When did it become a problem in your mind? Well, yeah, again, that's a very good question. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a theory in, in the world of recovery or sobriety, if you like, that the, that the person, the alcoholic, is the last person to know. That they're, you know, everyone else around them knows, but um, it, it comes with a, a sense of denial. But if I'm to be honest, I think I knew deep down that right from the word go, my drinking wasn't normal. My, it, was, it was out of the ordinary. But by the time I was 17, I could walk into an off-license and I would know exactly what lager had what percentage and what percentage I could get for the money I had in my pocket by looking around the off license. I'd know what strengths they were, you know, that sort of behavior obviously wasn't quite normal. And and it and it wasn't long before as a youngster I was drinking before I would go out. So if I was going to the pub to meet friends or go or doing anything really, other than if it was football or something like that, playing football, I would I would drink to go out because it it made that transition so much more bearable that it took away that shyness and everything so right from the word go I knew it wasn't quite right but I didn't ever want to look at that and that again that's kind of a kind of a fundamental state that comes with with addiction and alcoholism of, of any kind I think that sense of denial that we don't really want to acknowledge it or look at it and it wasn't long before the consequences start coming along and started to develop quite a selfish self-centered attitude around alcohol it, i started to bend and shape my life around alcohol so every, if it was football there was always a drink at the end of it if it was golf it was always a drink at the end of it and i worked for people that would pay me cash so that I'd, I'd get a drink at the end of it it was all you know that was how my life started and again knowing really that that wasn't probably that normal because a lot of my pals weren't weren't doing that yeah, and as time went on, those consequences got worse and worse and worse as, as they do with, with addiction. So, yeah, I don't know that there was any one point that I realised it was an issue. And certainly if I did, if that did sort of surface up, what, what I would do, it's, it sounds like a weird thing to say, and I'd kind of try and drink that away. I'd, I'd, I'd have another drink to try and forget about hmm. it. So how, how did you decide to do something about it then? I got to 29 years old and my life had revolved around alcohol for a long time by that point anyway. And I'd spent life kind of on the run from, I didn't realize I was on the run for myself most of the time, if not all the time. And, and the consequences were getting worse and worse and, and they were getting darker and darker and, and life was getting darker and darker. And I was, I was, I'd kind of started to lose who I was. Like I'd lost that that little boy I was trying to run away from. I'd lost that sense of who I was, and I would behave in a certain way. That certainly back at say eighteen, nineteen years old, if I you know my mid twenties, I'd seen myself. I would I would have looked at myself and said, you know, what are you doing? How are you even behaving that way? And and my moral compass it would shift all the time because I would do something, I'd be deeply ashamed. And I'd drink, I'd, I'd have to drink again to try and get rid of that shame, try and forgive myself in an odd sort of way. And my son, really, my son coming along was a catalyst to sending me to my rock bottom in a sense that he was going to be the thing that, you know, there's always the thing or when I get to this age or there's enough money in the bank or I meet this woman or for me, there was this, there was always a condition on 
when when I'd straighten myself out. And I guess I could can say that about a lot of other stuff, but there certainly was around my my drinking and and so my son was going to be the thing. You know, my, my partner at the time became pregnant, and and I thought this this has got to be it. I've got to somehow straighten myself. I've got to you know, and I was well gone by then. And how I thought I was going to do that, I really don't know. But I you know, I really I really had this desire to want to be able to step up and, and be a dad and you know, do the right the right thing I guess and I guess somewhere in my heart I, th- I knew I knew there was part of me that was able to do that but the reality of what happened was that it that that sense of responsibility and that sense of fear around a child coming into the world that I was responsible for actually had completely the opposite effect and I started behaving in an even more erratic damaging well I mean I was I wasn't safe to be around at times when I'd been drinking like it was getting angry it's like a cornered animal I felt like trapped and hmm. and my it, my instinct was to drink more to try again to try and it was drink was my solution it was my medicine so that alcoholic head says drink more you know get away from the problem and of course by doing so you cause more of the problem which I guess you could because you could say is the definition of addiction um in a sense and so, yeah, I, I drank myself out of the home. I drank, you know, I, I, I behaved so badly. And um, when my son was born, I'd done this home detox and I just stopped drinking. And this is a really important part of my story. I, I just stopped drinking and I did a home detox. They fed me Valium to stop me having seizures and, and such. And Sorry, John, and, the, the seizures, were they caused by stopping drinking? Yeah, so it's it's almost like as as I understand it, I'm not a doctor, but as I understand it, your body has relied on alcohol for so many years. So if you suddenly take away that depressant, it's like your nervous system goes into overload and you can have seizures and you know, it, it's it's really damaging stuff. So the medical world mostly advises that you don't just stop drinking because it, it can be dangerous so what they did with me is I had a it was a community program and I had a nurse come out to me daily and administer Valium to 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 just ease the nervous system back into normality if you like um so so that happens and I was at home and I have to say my my head went absolutely mad it, it you know I didn't I didn't get any help I didn't I didn't go to any groups I didn't reach out didn't I tried to do it on my own and the logical part of my mind said to me, you stop drinking and everything's going to be all right. <laughs> it's mm. like, and it couldn't have been further from the truth. It, what happened was that it's almost like my the past, the tidal wave of my past, of all the feelings and all the emotions and everything that I was trying to push away with alcohol and bottle up and keep to myself and just drink away. It was like they come flying back at me. They, they literally with a vengeance and, and I didn't know what to do with it all. I had no idea how to cope and how to, and it's, and also with a newborn baby in the house. And I mean, anyone who's a parent knows that that's scary enough as it is, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm not the only man to ever feel like that for sure, but I just had no tools to deal with it. And, and then and inevitably I drank again after a period of, a, it was, a, he was about six, seven weeks old, I think. And, and I, I drank, I went to the pub to visit the lads as I hadn't been to a pub for years, but, and I was watching the beers go under my nose, and and eventually, you know, I, was, I knew what, subconsciously I knew what I was doing. I knew you don't go you don't go into a hairdresser's and just sit there. You know, I knew I knew why I was there, and I ended up taking that one drink, and and then it 
and I was off. I was, I was off, but it hit a different level of it hit a different level of darkness in a a different level of shame, guilt, um, all that stuff. Feeling feeling completely, you know, I, I'd really started to despise the person I'd become, and yeah, it was. I just wanted to be in blackout so that I didn't have to face the reality of of everything I'd created. And but ironically, you know, and the sort of paradox, if that's the right word, is that it needed to get to that level of darkness and and pain for me to for it to crack me enough that that place of rock bottom you know had to get painful enough for me to realize that it was the problem was in me it wasn't anywhere else and I was on my own dossing in a house sort of that was being used as an office the mattress on the floor with cans around me and cigarette ends and just on my own done and um and that was where I surrendered that was the place I got to where I got to a place and I just knew for me I can't do this anymore and and most importantly I think as well is that I don't want to do this anymore I had this there was something inside me there was like this pilot light left on inside me of of just about enough of me left that I could grasp onto and say I just I can't do this anymore I'm done and that was every drink I took took me to that point you know, every drink I had took me to that point of rock bottom, and and from that point of rock bottom, everything changed. <laughs> so many questions I have, John. Obviously, we want to talk about that change, and I'm, I'm going to yeah. move on to that in a second. Firstly, you talked a lot about consequences, um, and you've talked a lot about your your personal anguish. How was your alcoholism affecting the people around you? Yeah, well, that if I'm to be honest, that's really what got me sober because of I I started to be able to see as much as I drank, I I, I wasn't able to run away from the guilt and the shame anymore unless I was in blackout. It was, and for me, alcohol had stopped working in that in that sense, which is kind of when I knew the game was up. But I was deceitful. I broke trust. I I behaved appallingly at a, a funeral of. Um, relative sort of thing i um i was in blackout i started a fight at this funeral and just shocking behavior and and it was and it was the nearest it was my nearest and dearest who i affected the most i would turn up my sister bless her she she really bore the brunt of my drinking i would i would turn up at her door battered and bruised and and i would you know i'd, I'd end up i'd turn up there and just lost you know desperately wanting help but then i'd abuse i'd end up drunk and i'd burn carpets i'd wet the bed i would you know, I'd just behave i'd just abuse people's trust and again you know just adding to that shame and guilt and my dad was always trying to help me out bless him and he got me dug me out of trouble and he would he would he would give me money and lend me money and you know bless him he knew he knew time after time where that money was going, you know, and I'd plead and beg him for the money and, and he'd give it to me every time. And, and he knew, and I knew, and he knew, and it was unsaid that where it was going. And yeah, and I guess, I guess you could say, and then the ultimate was how I behaved around my newborn son, you know, when he came along and, and my behavior around him was just, just shocking. So there is a, a ripple effect of, of alcoholism where, you know, my my sis wrote me a letter in the end saying, you know, you're my brother. I love you, but I can't I can't have anything more to do with you until you only you know what you need to do. Only you know how you can sort yourself out. But 
I want my brother back. And of course, I read it and I'd been drunk and I thought, well, yeah, screw you, you know, <laughs> carried on drinking it. It was the only way I knew how to deal with it at the time. But yeah, so I think the hardest part of alcoholism is that sometimes you can almost see yourself in third person behaving in a way and you, you almost want to grab, you almost want to get yourself around the neck and shake yourself and say, what are you, you know, what are you doing? And, and it is a sense of being powerless over your actions and your drinking and, who you've become that's just it's so painful it's such an awful place to be like like almost like you're possessed by something then you you just you like you can't do anything about it so yeah. you you hit rock bottom as you said and then you said you got to a point of surrender um yeah. so firstly what were you surrender what were you surrendering to at that point and then what what did that what did that lead you to do what did you do from there in my recovery, I've kind of come into faith and, and I, and I wouldn't say hundred percent into like a Christian faith or anything like that, but I know that something, something was, something was with me when I, it's like, I, I gave up, just, I let go. There's this mentality that you've got to fight this addiction. You've got to really battle against it. You've got to, and it's that old adage of anything, you, anything you resist persists. And I think that point of surrender is a place of letting go. It's, it's completely, counterintuitive of fighting it and controlling it and all that it's just saying i'm done and, and letting go and and i think that internal kind of it's like an internal action if you like or a state you get into it's a really difficult thing to put into words when you let go it's like it's like something else comes in it's like you make space for something else and you become i became teachable i became willing through through desperation through pain and misery and darkness i became willing to do anything it took to not be the way i was anymore and i'm not exaggerating when i say that my sobriety and my recovery literally unfolded in front of me from that moment it was in a, a manner of a couple of weeks i was i was in a, a treatment center after somebody had a cancellation i'd find the doctors up saying I'd already been under the mental health team and I phoned them back out and said, I'm desperate. I need help. And they said, okay. And yeah, I was in this place. I was in this, in this rehab center in a matter of a couple of weeks later. And, and then after that, I was in a dry house, homeless and all this stuff. I was then in a dry house. Um, and it was like, all I had to do was, was make, was make that next right decision or take that next right action. And it all stemmed from that point of surrender. It was like that old phrase, that old brilliant phrase, like when the pupil's ready, the teacher appears. And that was completely my experience. And when I was ready, my sobriety was like, it was laid out in front of me. And I can't explain that. It, and it still sends goosebumps down my spine now when I talk about it, because it, it was just, it was waiting for me. And so I grew in a faith around that stuff, around that, um point of surrender and a point of letting go which i still do today around many different issues and around my alcoholism still because i'm you know i'm not cured so yeah i think i think that's that's the point for me so so who who helped you uh on this road to recovery and how did they help you wow that's an amazing question um and i'm gonna say far too many people for me to say <laughs> and it, and very and but but very much again the right people came into my life even even before i hot, hit that rock bottom i was i was working over at a place in red or meant to be working i was trying to hold it together 
And this guy ended up working with us randomly. Who was a he was a, a carpenter type chap, and and I don't know why I just started talking to him about AA and, and all this stuff. And and he said, and he, we started he started having a really big conversation about. It. He said, I've been and, and you should try it. You should go and you should and it was like this funnel of life that everything was like channeling me to this point. And and then once I did stop drinking in this treatment center even from my key worker who I had in there, just amazing. And, and AA people from AA came in and took the meetings. John, should we just, just tell us what the, what, what's the AA? It's Alcoholics Anonymous, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry. So Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. For, for anyone who doesn't know is um, essentially it's a 12 step fellowship. It's a 12 step fellowship um, of alcoholics. Everyone, everyone in it is, is a recovering alcoholic. There are there are said to be around two and a half million people sober at the moment in AA worldwide, and we we meet on a weekly basis. I mean, in my area, which is the Mid Surrey area, um, there are eighty four meetings every week in my area, every every day of the week, every night of the week, and it's it's a group it's a group setting. So people come along and we sit and we share our experience about what happened to us. So they say you share your experience, strength, and your hope. So what happened to you? Sorry, what you were like, what happened to you, and what you're like now. And in that, a lot of people go through what's called a 12-step program with a sponsor, which is, to answer your previous question, which is also another person who absolutely fundamentally helped me in my sobriety, my sponsor. But the 12 steps are like a, they are a program of recovery. It's like a place of taking responsibility for yourself it's a place of uncovering the truth about who you became uh what you did so you go for an inventory process where you write out your harms you've done your your resentments towards people your fears you have and you look at you uncover the truth about who you are and you look at what they might call character defects and and flaws in your character all this stuff that that is the under undercurrents of the addiction and you sit with another person and you speak this stuff out. It's called that's called step five. And what you do is you you go through that process and it it's such a healing moment. I mean, I remember doing mine with my sponsor and, and it was like I was no longer alone anymore. I'd I'd bared my soul, I'd faced up to a lot of truths about myself. Well, all the truths about myself actually. And I know for me, if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be sober today still. I really wouldn't be. And then after that process, you go on and you you work at changing the things you find. So the things I found out about myself, those defects, I I make a concerted effort to change those things in myself through through asking this higher power and saying, God, can you take this stuff? I need help with it. And after that, I go out and, and make amends for my behavior with, with those I affected through steps eight and nine, which is made direct amends to those we had harmed. So... I go out and make a direct face-to-face amends with with people that I've harmed through my drinking. Sorry, John. How did how did that feel doing that? <laughs> yeah, it's it is both terrifying, but there was a sense for me. I can I can only speak for myself that I knew I had to, I knew not that I had to do this stuff that I wanted to do this stuff. I wanted to I wanted to um, in an odd way, for someone who had never taken responsibility for anything, oddly, I wanted to take responsibility for it. Some of them were very difficult to step into. I remember doing the amends with my, my dad. I'd always had a very difficult relationship with my father. And it was always going to be 
probably the hardest and and um you know I, I i could still walk into a room and feel like a three-year-old boy with my dad you know at the age of however so i was really frightened of doing that but i knew i had this faith that it was the right thing to do and and i have to say they were certainly with my system i you know all that stuff they were the most healing moments probably i've ever encountered of uh in a sense asking for forgiveness but in a sense at the same time I'm forgiving myself by doing that stuff. It's like a reciprocal action of, it's like an outpouring of responsibility and saying, this was me. This is what I did. Um, I'm ashamed of that. I, I'm not trying to say I didn't have any part in this. This is this is exactly what I did. But And I want to make amends for that. But equally, I could put my hand in my heart and say, if I continue to do this stuff that I'm now doing within within AA and within the 12 steps, then I'm, I'm not going to repeat that behavior. You know, if I stay sober and I could put for the first time in my life, I could say to someone, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to do my best and I really know that that was a possibility. Whereas in my drinking, sorry was the most frequent word that came out of my mouth. And anyone who knew me very well knew that sorry meant nothing coming from me because it wouldn't be long before I'd done something else or done it again or broken that trust, you know. So to go to people and make those amends was just, it's just mind blowing and it heals it healed relationships but it healed me and it healed them you know mm. it, it really is just just such a profound experience that you can't really put it into words words don't justify mm-hmm. that but that, that's what the 12 steps are about healing they're about they're about reconnection with who you are they're about reconnection with the world reconnection with a higher power or god they're about, yeah, not, not not being isolated in addiction anymore, or isolated in the dark, you know, living a dishonest, awful way of life. And this 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 process is such a simple, beautiful process that you go through. And they, they say at the end of it, you you have a spiritual awakening at the end of this. And and that's what happened for me. I, I it was like I woke up. It was like I was in a addiction-driven trance most of my life. And through my rock bottom, through that place of of desperation set on this journey and found the 12 steps went through the 12 steps and and i woke up became started to become who i'm meant to be and and it's it just beautiful it's absolutely beautiful how important is it uh so these aa meetings you're with people who are going on a similar journey and your sp- yeah. your sponsor is somebody that you're accountable to who's who's been through something similar i i guess uh, yeah, how, how important is it that you're with people who are on a similar journey well this this is exactly it's a really good point and it it is one of the fundamental reasons that alcoholics anonymous works so well is that you you you, you walk into a room where everybody knows exactly how you feel and the feelings you've gone through and the, they might be physically different journeys so so you might have got you've all got to that room for a physical different journey but for me the undercurrents and and the the reasons if you like behind that addiction are they're all kind of the same and i'm not saying this to put anyone down who hasn't been through what i've been through but people who haven't been through what i've been through do not they don't have that internal knowing about how that feels just like anyone i've I've never jumped out of a plane so i'm not i'm never going to know what it's like to jump out of a plane until i jump out of a plane right and it's the same with with Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was that was one of the reasons it was founded because they found this they found this absolute identification and this there's something very very powerful that happens when one alcoholic talks to another, 
and, and recovery starts to happen. And really, when, when I got sober, I was full of fear, full of guilt, and full of shame. I was so scared. I, I, I didn't trust myself. But that sense of identification almost cut through that fear. And it said, you can, you, you're, you can trust here. You can, you can start to learn to be who you are because these people really know how you feel and they really know what it's like to do some of the things you did, all those shameful things. Then they're not judging you. They're accepting you and they say, come in, take a seat, start to get better. You know, we'll love you back together. And do you now, uh, are you now involved in supporting people who, who are maybe at an earlier stage in, in their journey of battling addiction? Totally. Yeah, totally. And again, that's another that's another foundational part of what we do in that it's about being there for others. And the, the, the very reason, the very point of an AA meeting is to be there for that person who walks in off the street. That's the, that's the fundamental reason for an AA meeting being there is that there's a somewhere for someone to come off the street and sit down and, and experience that same thing I experienced. And I, I always reach my hand out when anyone new comes in go take their number, see how they are, make contact. Um, because I know, I know how scary it is to walk. I had to be drunk, really drunk to go to my first couple of meetings um, prior to going into that hospital. And and I know how frightening that is. And I know how frightening it is to start to even think about facing your life as it's become. And so, you know, I really am key at, at being there for the newcomer, being there for the new person and 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 anyone in and around as well. So, it, it, that's really by by giving it away we get to keep it in a sense but it's not that's not my motivation for doing it it's it's just an amazing byproduct of, of what we do and do you know what there's nothing more amazing than watching someone come in in that state of being like a rabbit in the headlights and watching them go through that process what i went through wake up and and come alive you know come alive out of that darkness and stepping into like a a way of life that yeah, they just they just wake up. It's this beautiful thing to accompany people along, and I've sponsored many people in in AA, and it's just the biggest blessing to see people go through that. You know, John, it's it's amazing you sharing your story like this. Um, I, I'd like to just have a slight change of perspective. What what's your advice for people listening to this who know someone who's battling addiction? What what should they do? Yeah. I'm I'm really interested in. When, when is it right to confront someone? When is it um, right yeah. to to just be there for them? Do you have any guidance on that? Another, it's another great question and, and a real puzzling one for a lot of people because um, so sometimes when I'm speaking, I talk about my addiction being a bit like Gollum, you know, Gollum on Lord of the Rings, where he's got mm. where he's got, where he's got that ring, and it it's giving him something, but he's he's so protective of it. He gets he gets violent and vicious when anyone goes near it for me it's a it's a perfect analogy of addiction and it's really difficult for the onlooker it's really difficult for the loved one because i defended my illness to the end until that rock bottom it was like if anyone questioned it or went near it it's like i remember my mum questioning my drinking when i was about 20 21 years old something like that and, and i remember being really spiteful back at her as if to say you know don't you dare question that you know say anything else but don't go near my drinking that that's mine it's like this, you know, my precious sort of thing. And so it can be really, it can be really, really difficult for those who are around, i.e. for my sister and stuff like that, who are around the addiction. And it, and sometimes it can cause more harm by, by bringing it up than it does by not. Um, 
which is an odd concept in itself. But there is a sister fellowship to AA called Al-Anon, which is a, a fellowship for relatives and loved ones of the alcoholic or the suffering alcoholic. And one of their one of their sort of terminologies or phrases is to let go with love and not to try and control that person, but to allow them to take their own path, their own journey. Not to let you know, you still you still let a person know that you love them and you're there for them, but to not enable that behaviour and to and it's a really it's a really difficult fine line that there are probably no real clear cut answers to. But to to walk that line is, I know mean, I. I I would never have put up with me when I was drinking. Do you know what I mean? I'd have been gone, but people did. And so it's a, it's a bit, I guess it's a bit of an, not an unanswerable question, but a difficult question to answer in, in as such as that by trying to support someone, putting it another way, a person who's well, well entrenched in alcoholism, unless they're ready, is quite unlikely to want to hear about getting better if that makes sense. Mm. It's almost like the illness wants to defend itself. And, and like, so you could argue it's worse for the people around the alcoholic than the alcoholic. Cause the alcoholic can get drunk and forget about it all. And you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, but the loved ones, it's like, but I guess you could say, I, I always knew I was loved. That's, that's, that's one thing that probably helped to keep that pilot. Like I knew I had love around me. I knew, I knew my family, they couldn't do anything more for me, but I knew I was loved. And I think that's probably really important. That's a brilliant place to finish. John, thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. No, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And thanks for asking me. So that was John, a recovering alcoholic and member of Alcoholics Anonymous in the UK, sharing his story with me. And at the end, he told me this. If anyone is struggling out there, then one thing I would say is, you know, please don't try and do it alone because it's, it's really painful. And, and the illness, addiction lives in solitude. It lives in aloneness and darkness. It doesn't. It doesn't live in community and togetherness and connection. And and that's what I would say to anyone. You know, try and reach out and speak those words out and be be honest about where you're at and who you're with and how you're doing because that that starts that that journey on. You know. I could have kept asking John questions for a long time after this. And I think addiction in its different forms is something we'll return to again on this show. In fact, after I finished chatting with John, he gave me a little indication as to why this might be worth returning to. What I didn't mention was how, I guess, how that AI also reconnects families and families heal as well as not just the individual, you know, the whole Hmm. It's like the, the addiction has a ripple effect, but then recovery has a, an equal ripple effect, brings families back together and groups. And, you know, it's beautiful. It's a lovely thing to see. That's almost it for this episode. Before we go, don't forget you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community. You can help support this show by making a small monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. You can learn more about Aruka on the website arukanetwork.org. You can download every edition of Tearfund's Footsteps magazine at learn.tearfund.org. And finally, if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for future interviewees, then you can reach me directly via email jake at arukanetwork.org. But that's it for this episode. Until next time, bye for now.